0: I didn't think we'd forgotten how to do that, so we. <laughs> uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, on three different occasions, taught a lesson involving a people referred to as Samaritans. We look in the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Luke and we read the story of what's referred to as the Good Samaritan. In Luke chapter 17, there are 10 lepers that are cleansed. And only one turns around and gives God the glory for it. And the Lord said that one was a Samaritan. And then in John chapter 4, in verse 4 we read where it says, concerning Jesus and His disciples, for they must needs go through Samaria. And here He will have a conversation with a Samaritan woman. These are the three accounts. If you understand something about the Samaritans, it will help you understand a lot more about these three accounts as you read and study them. The Samaritans were a people that the Jews despised, and the Samaritans despised the Jews. They simply did not like one another. There was no love lost between the Jews and the Samaritans. Historically, the Samaritans had been around for about 700 years prior to Christ, If you go back far enough, you'll know where the kingdom of Israel was divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom back in the days of the King uh, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. And then in about 727 B.C., the Assyrian Empire that was the dominating empire of the day invaded the northern kingdom and captured it and took away many of the Jews into captivity, a few remained. Then the Assyrians repopulated the area with people from other nations that they had captured, some of their own people, and the remaining Jews and those that came in from the outside, uh, they mixed together and they had marriages and developed families. And so basically the Jews of the ten northern tribes were hedonized as a result of all of this. And they were not able to prove their genealogy after this because now they were not pure Jews. We also know that as time went on that they established a place of worship on a mountain called Mount Gerizim. And if you're familiar with Mount Gerizim, it was one of two mountains uh, where God pronounced blessings and curses on after He delivered the law to the nation of Israel after they came out of the land of Egypt. God gave them the law. And on Mount Gerizim, he pronounced blessings upon those that kept his laws and kept his commandments. On Mount Ebal, he pronounced curses upon those who disobeyed him and did not keep his laws and his commandments. And one of the easy ways of remembering which mountain is which is that Jerizim begins with a G as the word good does. And Ebal begins with letter E as evil does. And so Mount Gerizim was that mountain which all the many wonderful blessings that God had said He would bestow upon His people were declared. At the same time on Mount Ebal were all the curses that God said He would bring upon His people if they were disobedient and disregarding His laws and His commandments. So the Samaritans, which are people in the land of Samaria, they began to worship on Mount Gerizim and even built a temple on Mount Gerizim. But Jerusalem had always been the place of worship. Jerusalem had been the place that God had chosen, where Solomon had built the temple. It was a place that God had approved to put His name there, and to worship there. So there was a great deal of animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans only recognized five books of the Old Testament. That's the first five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Well, as you well know, the 39 books of the Old Testament but they only recognized five. Now, the 39 books of the Old Testament represent the Jewish Bible, even today. But the Samaritans only recognized the first five, the only five books that they felt like were authoritative. They did not regard the other books as being inspired. So we see some of the differences in the historical background of how the Samaritans emerged, you might say. And proving your genealogy has always been extremely important to the Jewish people. But those in Samaria could not do that. They simply couldn't do it. To show you the animosity, you can read in John 8, 48, where the Lord Jesus Christ, speaking to some Jews, said, He that is of God, heareth God's word, but you hear them not, because you're not of God. That was a pretty blunt statement to make to them. And they responded and said, Have we not said unto thee that thou art a Samaritan and a devil? They called call the Lord Jesus Christ a Samaritan. And a double. That was certainly no compliment to the the Savior because of what I've already told you up to this particular point. In Luke 9, 51, we read where concerning Christ, it came a time when He should be received up into heaven. And He set His face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. So He sent messengers ahead to a village of the Samaritans for them to find a place of refreshment on their journey. But the Bible says those Samaritans, when they found out his face was set like he was going to Jerusalem and not Mount Jerusalem, they received him not. And so the disciples had to go to another village. But I want you to notice something here. That village where Christ would have spent a little time, they suffered great loss because they didn't have the presence of the Savior with them. But that other village that did receive him, then they did. The Jewish people in general did not receive Jesus Christ as a promised Messiah, so the Lord took the kingdom, the gospel, the church, away from them as it had been established in the ministry of Christ and gave it to a Gentile people, and that's us. And we are warned in the Scriptures not to be high-minded about it, because just like God took it from the Jews and gave it to the Gentiles, He likewise could take it from the Gentiles and, and give it back to the Jews if He wanted to. So we find the Samaritans it simply had no dealings. And we'll see this in just a moment as I want to take a look in chapter 4 of the Gospel of John. This is some of the background again concerning Samaritans and Jews. And if you don't know that, uh, it's it's not going to mean near as much to you when you study these lessons that I've already brought to your attention. But if you do know that, know the background of that, it'll make a whole lot more sense to you. So we go to John chapter 4. And in verse 4 it says, For he must needs go through Samaria. Now the Verse prior to that says he was going from Judea to Galilee. Now, I want you to see kind of a, a picture here of Palestine or the land of Canaan. You got Samaria pretty much in the central middle, uh, upper middle of, of this land. To the south, you got Judea, Jerusalem. To the north you got Galilee. Uh, to the east of here, you've got the Jordan River, and to the west, you got the Mediterranean Sea. So if you're down here in the south and you want to go to Galilee, you got one of three routes you can take. You can go by the Mediterranean Sea and take a detour around that way. Or you can cross Jordan's River and go up and come around that way. Or you can go straight through Samaria. Many of the Jews would not go through the land of Samaria for the reasons I've already given you. So they would take the longer route. They would go to the west or they would go to the east. But the shortest distance was right through Samaria. It's kind of like Atlanta. You can go straight through Atlanta or you can go around the west side of 285 or you can go around the east side. Now, I always go straight through. I go straight through. Of course, Nashville's similar. You can go straight through or you can swing Browley Parkway this way or Browley Parkway that way, but Atlanta, I think, gets it, point across, a little bit stronger. So I do try to time it to go through Atlanta between 10 and 2. It's still bad, but it's not near as bad as it is from 8 to 4 or 5. But anyway, I always go straight through Atlanta, and I'm always glad glad to get to the other side and see it in my rearview mirror. It's never a pleasure going through Atlanta. So the nearest route, the shortest route, was to go straight through Samaria. typical Jew wouldn't do that. He would take a detour around to the east or a detour around to the west. But the Lord Jesus Christ has said of him here, he must needs go through Samaria. Now if you trace the movements of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the Gospel of John, you will find, to begin with, he starts off in Jerusalem. And then the Lord uh, goes to Judea. And then the Lord goes to Samaria. And at the end of this uh, conversation that he had with the Samaritan woman, we'll see near the end here, there are going to be those who are going to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ some other Samaritans, and they will declare, that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world. So we go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the world. Now, If you read Acts 1 and 8, you'll find after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, after He spent 40 days on this earth, just before he ascends to go into heaven, He speaks to His disciples. And his disciple, he tells His disciples, you shall, be, you, shall, uh, you shall remain here in Jerusalem to be endued with power from on high, and you shall be witnesses of Me, starting at Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the most parts of the world. So I hope you can see the parallel here in the Lord Jesus Christ setting the example. In Matthew chapter 10, we find where the Lord gives the first of His gospel commissions. He will give two main commissions. Here's the first one, and He gives this to His twelve apostles. And He tells them, as you go, you go preach, but you are not to go into the way of the Gentiles, or to any city of the Samaritans, but rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now the Lord brings three groups of people to our attention, Gentile, Samaritans, and the Jewish people that's referred to as the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The word lost here does not mean eternally lost. It means they were lost from the benefits of the gospel and the kingdom that they could have enjoyed had they received him as the promised Messiah. So he sends those apostles out And he tells them two places they're not to go. Now, I think, I'd like to raise an important question, I think, right here. For those who embrace the idea that the gospel itself is designed to inform people who are not children of God so they can make a decision for Christ to become children of God, then the Lord Jesus Christ for three years omitted the Gentiles. For three years he omitted the Samaritans. Now, just think about that for a second. Does that make a lot of sense to you? I hope it doesn't. Well, it had nothing to do with their eternal destiny. But it did have something to do with the fact that Jesus Christ was come, is the promise of sign? and he came to us through the Jewish people. As I mentioned last Wednesday night, we have the scriptures that's come to us through the Jewish people. The Apostle Paul made it very clear in Romans chapter one, the gospel was first preached to the Jew and then to the Gentile. It came to the Jew first. And for three to three and a half years, the Gentiles did not receive the, hear the gospel. The Samaritan did not hear the gospel, the gospel designed for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Sheep uh, symbolically represents the Lord's people here uh, on this earth, his elect family. So we come to John chapter four with all that uh, hopefully uh, in your minds. And the Bible says, he must needs to go through Samaria. So uh, why was that? It, it was he in a hurry. Uh, Did he need to go through Samaria because uh, it would take him too long if he went the other routes? Uh, Those who see this story unfolding, uh, there's a person in Samaria that the Lord Jesus Christ has an appointment with. The only thing is, this woman doesn't know she has an appointment with the Lord, so he must needs go through Samaria. So let's pick it up here in verse five. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, the historical background on this is the fact that when Jacob was pronouncing blessings upon his sons, uh, right at the end of his life, he gave a double portion unto Joseph. Normally a double portion went to the firstborn, which would have been Reuben. But Reuben had committed an ungodly act, and the uh, double portion that would normally have went to him was taken from him. We went over that when we'd done those messages on Joseph was taken away from Reuben and it was given unto Joseph who of course was a favorite of Jacob. The one who gave the coat of many colors to. The son of his old age. We find he gave it to him and his descendants. And the word shikar means purchased. It was purchased and then it was defended also militarily by Jacob then before he gave it to his son Joseph. So the word shikar means purchased. And this is the area where um, Jesus comes to the city of Samaria called Sychar near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Now Jacob you know spent the last 17 years of his life down in the land of Egypt. He passed away in Egypt. And then his sons took him out of Egypt and took him back to the land of Canaan and buried him there. But before he spent his last 17 years in the land of Egypt, Jacob spent a great deal of his life right here in this area. And apparently, he dug this well. You'll find later on where the Samaritan woman speaks about the well that Jacob drank out of, his children drank out of, his cattle drank out of this well. And so, Jacob's well is in this parcel of land uh, uh, known as Samaria. So, he comes t- to Jacob's well, and he sat on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. This means it was noontime. The uh, hottest time of the day, half the day has gone by. Jesus' disciples have been traveling. We'll find out in just a minute. When they come to the well, Jesus will sit on the well. The Bible's going to say that Jesus was weary, and he sat on Jacob's well. He was Jacob's God, and he's now sitting on Jacob's well. The disciples are going to go into the city of the Samaritans, and they're going to buy some meat there. The Lord Jesus Christ and his disciples were hungry, and the Lord Jesus Christ was weary, And the Lord Jesus Christ is going to ask this woman who's going to come and see Him in a few minutes, that we'll get to it shortly, He's going to ask her to give Him something to drink. So we see the Lord Jesus Christ in His humanity, He hungered, He thirsted, He became weary. And all through the Gospels we see a contrast of His humanity and also His divinity. And that's important for you to see. It's important for you to see Him as a Son of Man as well as being the Son of God. You know, when Jesus was born, The angelic choir came and said unto the shepherds, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, His divinity. And then they told Him, You'll find find Him wrapped in swallowing clothes and laid in a manger. There's His humanity. That's God made manifest in the flesh. When the Lord Jesus Christ was in a ship in Matthew chapter 8, there's a great storm with His disciples. The disciples are greatly afraid, but the Lord Jesus Christ is in that ship as well, but he's in the bottom of that ship, and what is it? He's asleep. Christ required sleep like you do. He required sleep like I do. Jesus grew weary in body as he traveled from place to place. He was tired, he was weary, and he's above that ship taking a rest, and he's asleep. But in answer to the cries and prayers of his disciples, what does Jesus do? He arises from sleep, comes to the top of that ship, and speaks to the storm. says, to the storm, peace be still. There's his divinity. At the very word of the Lord Jesus Christ, that storm become a non-factor. That storm ceased to be a storm. The waves quit crashing into the ship, and the the wind was no longer boisterous anymore. It was just completely still and completely quiet. There's his divinity, you see. When the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified, you see his humanity... Because the Son of God couldn't die. He had to become the Son of Man to die. You see, his humanity. But after three days, the Lord Jesus Christ self-resurrected. I emphasize he self-resurrected, and there you see his divinity. So it's important for you to see both aspects of this as you study the Gospel, study the Bible, study the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the very fact that he became weary, and he was hungry, and he was thirsty, tells me that Christ endured some of the same things in normal living that you do. You know what it is to be hungry. You know what it is to be thirsty. You know what it is to be tired. You know what it is to be weary. You know what it is to uh, can't keep your eyes open and you need to go to sleep. It's kind of interesting to me. When you need to stay awake, sometimes you can't hardly do it. And then when you want to go to sleep, you can't hardly close your eyelids and get it. That beats the thing I've ever seen. But anyway, that's the way it works, right? When you know you got, got, you know, if you know you got to get real early to go on a trip, uh, can you go to sleep? You lay in bed, and you know you got to get early, and you can't even go to sleep, right? <laughs> That's when you really need to go to sleep. And then when you come to church, when you really need to be awake, it's hard to keep your eyes open sometimes, right? That's not, not the only place, but then it's, a, it's a place where I see that happening from time to time. Sometimes people say, Brother Lawrence, I don't know how you preach. Uh, looking at everybody, because it's hard for me to pay attention just looking at a few people. Well, best way I know to do that, I'll just start inviting you one by one to come up here and sit while I preach and you see what I see and then you'll pray harder for me. (laughs) Overall, in general, y'all do fantastic. (laughs) Just kidding a little bit with you here. So the Lord is weary. So he comes to Jacob's well. His disciples go on into Samaria to buy meat. It's important that uh, the Lord be alone with this woman. The Lord was alone with Nicodemus, wasn't he? And uh, it's important also to notice the different people that the Lord Jesus Christ ministered to out of all different kind of categories. We just use John 3 and John 4 for a side-by-side contrast just for a minute. In John chapter 3, the Lord Jesus Christ deals with Nicodemus. In John chapter 4, with the Samaritan woman. Just some of the differences right here. First of all, man, woman, has a name, Nicodemus. She has a name, but we don't know what it was. Nicodemus was a master in Israel. He had a high position. This woman had no position at all. She's doing the work of a servant. She's going to come to the well to draw water. Nicodemus was highly thought of. If we study the life of Nicodemus in this Bible, you're going to find that he was upright, upstanding, uh, a man of great moral character, and a man who was willing to minister and serve the Lord Jesus Christ in his own manner, in his own way, as God used him along with Joseph of Arimathea, even in taking the body of his son down from the cross. This woman here, though, uh, you're going to find out where she had problems keeping husbands. Lord willing, we get to that again in a minute. So we have a lot of difference between these two people right here, side by side in the Scripture. So the Lord comes here to Jacob's well. He sits down on Jacob's well and he says, There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. That's why she came there. It's noon time. She's come there at that particular time. Um, And as soon as she comes there, he says unto her, give me to drink. Notice her reply. Then said the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Again, if you don't know the background, the Samaritans, what I told you earlier, their history and everything, uh, you're going to wonder, why don't they have dealings with, with the Samaritans? Well, I hope that you understand that at this point. She understood that. And she understood when she saw this man at Jacob's well. She didn't know his name. She didn't know who he was. She had no idea he was a son of God. All she knew knew that he was a Jew. He was a man. He was a Jew. I'm sure she was able to tell that by his dress, his apparel, his physical features, etc. And he sat down on that well. And I'm sure she was very surprised he even spoke to her, much less asking her to give him a drink of water. So she replies in this way, how is it now being a Jew Asketh me, a Samaritan woman, to give you a drink when the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So she's puzzled at this. Jesus answers, said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, here's something she does not know. If thou knewest the gift of God, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, in the book of Corinthians, he's spoken of as the unspeakable gift, the greatest gift. In James 1, 17, it says, Every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from the Father of life, soon there is no vereness or shadow of eternity. And so whatever gift is under consideration fits that in verse. But I'm telling you, here's the gift of all gifts. The Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, that thou knewest the gift of God. This woman does not know him, but he knows everything about her. And you'll find that out in a few minutes. There's nothing about her he does not know. And he knew she was going to be there at noontime. And that's why he must needs go through Samaria. He has a meeting with her, an appointment with her that she knows nothing about up to this point. If thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that said to thee, give me to drink. You ever heard somebody so arrogant in life? And maybe they get pulled over for a speeding ticket and the windows roll down and the policeman comes up and tells me he's speeding, will give him a ticket. He says, Do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? if you knew who I was, you'd just say, I'm sorry, uh, you know, you're above the law. Uh, if you want to speed, you just go ahead and speed? Now that's the kind I like to see him throw the book at. Right? But anyway. Sometimes somebody come weaving in and out of traffic, one thing and another, and Karen says, I wish I was a highway patrolman right now. <laughs> Boy, where's he at when you need him? I wish he was here and go after that guy. One day it happened, <laughs> and she was so happy to see him get pulled over. But anyway, we're looking at something a little bit different. If thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that said to thee, Give me to drink, thou would have asked of him, and he'd have given thee living water. It'd been a reverse. You'd have asked me, and I'd have gave you something far more valuable than this water in this well right here. I'd have give you something far more valuable. I'd have give you something called living water. Now, at this point, she's thinking he's talking about little water, natural water, the outward, the external, etc. But the Lord is talking eternal. The Lord is talking spiritual. The Lord is talking about something far more greater than that. That's why the Lord told Satan in Matthew chapter 4, man should not live what? By bread alone, but by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. Yes, we have to have bread, we have to have water. In fact, we have to have air and we have to have light. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ is all those things to us spiritually? Man cannot live on this earth without air, without light, without food, without water. Christ said in John chapter 6, I'm the living bread. It came down from heaven. And 1 John 1, 5 and 6, we find here where it says that God is light and there's no darkness in him. John 8 12, Jesus said, I am the way, and Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoso walketh out of me shall not walk in darkness, shall have the light of life. There's the light, there's the bread, he's the living water, he's also the air. You know, man breathing, uh, God breathed in man's nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living soul in Genesis chapter 2. But in the scriptures, you're going to find where the spirit oftentimes associated with the wind and with the air that we breathe. The Lord Jesus Christ is everything to us spiritually that we stand in need of from a natural perspective. So he speaks about living water. One of my favorite prophecies is found in the book of Zechariah, chapter 14, verse 8, which says, In that day shall living waters go out from Jerusalem. Half of them toward the former sea, half of them toward the hinder sea, and summer and winter shall it be. When Christ died on Calvary, I want you to see this. When Christ died on Calvary, his arms stretched out with nails in his hands and nails in his feet. I'm telling you, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ reached all the way back to the first Arab promise and the first man ever lived on this earth to Adam. He reached back 4,000 years that way, he reached 2,000 years that way. That was living waters. It's another expression basically for eternal life. If thou know known the gift of God, You'd have asked me, I'd have given you living water instead of me asking you to give me a drink of this water. Just notice how the woman responds. She says, Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank, and therefore himself and his children and his cattle? Are you greater than Jacob? See, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob formed, uh, it was the basis of the formation and creation of the nation of Israel. And they looked to Jacob as their father. The 12 tribes of Israel came from Jacob. They considered him from that point of view their father. And she says, Art thou greater than Jacob? I'd say he was greater than Jacob. It was he that created Jacob. It was he that formed Jacob. It's he that found Jacob. He found Jacob in a desert land, a waste, howling, wilderness, when Jacob was not looking for him. He blessed Jacob with a vision where a ladder was set up from heaven right to this earth, and angel ascending, descending upon that ladder which is a picture of Jesus Christ as our great mediator, the one who stands between heaven and earth, my friends. When you pray to the Father, it goes through the Son of God. He is the in-between. He's the daysman that Job spoke about. He's our mediator. He became that. He showed that to Jacob in a vision. He told Jacob, he was the God of his father Isaac, his grandfather Abraham. He said, the land you're laying on right here, I'm giving you and your seed forever. He says, I will keep you, I will lead you, and I will never leave you nor forsake you. Is I answered the question for her, is he greater than Jacob our father? I think so, right? I think so. He blessed Jacob 20 years away from home down there in the land of Laban. He blessed Jacob to be able to go back to the land, uh, go down to the land of Egypt and see a son he thought had been dead for over 20 years. He blessed him to see not only his son but his grandsons and to remind him that he was the God who appeared to him uh, in that first experience I've already mentioned. And how he had fed him all the days of his life, how he had delivered him time and time and time again. Art thou greater than our father Isaac? Excuse me, Jacob? Yes, far greater than Jacob. See, this woman's in a great deal of darkness, but she's getting a little more light as time goes on. (laughs) It's beginning to filter through. Jesus answered and said unto her, he didn't even reply to that question. Whosoever drinketh this water shall thirst again. In a sense, he didn't. But notice, he says, here's Jacob's well, here's Jacob's water, so to speak. And whosoever drinketh this water shall thirst again. To me, that symbolizes the world in which we live. What in this world truly satisfies you? What in this world have you done that satisfied you to such an extent that it was just complete and total? I don't know of anything. Everything this world is, everything this world offers, I can assure you, is temporary. It may be okay for a little while and then it diminishes, it evaporates, it just goes away. But not the things of God. Whosoever drinks this water shall thirst again ain't you no know, telling how much water I've drank in my lifetime <laughs> I'm telling you there's nothing that will quench your thirst any better than a cold glass of water when you're hot and tired and perspiring and uh, I'm telling you it's far greater for you than, than Coke or Pepsi or anything else you can drink there's nothing that can quite do the job like water and that's why God compares it to the gospel in Proverbs twenty-five, twenty-five. he says as cold waters are to a thirsty soul so is good news from a far country but after a while, and a few hours after that, you get thirsty again, right? And you got to go back to the well again. But Jesus is talking about something far superior than that. Listen to how he expresses it Whosoever of drake this water shall thirst again. That's a fact. But have of drake the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Now you might hear that and think, well, Brother Lawrence, what about a text like Psalms 42, 1, where it says, As the heart thirsteth after the water brook, so thirsteth my soul after thee, O God. Jesus said, The water I'll give you, a man shall never thirst. That means he shall never go lacking. He shall receive a full supply. When you're born of the Spirit of God, uh, God established a fountain of living waters within your heart, within your soul, that you can draw on at any time, wherever you may be. You need to be thirsty for spiritual things. Amen. Have you been thirsty this past week? Have you looked forward to coming to the house of God, to the worship service of God, meeting with the Lord's people? Have you been thirsty to sing those wonderful hymns of Zion, those uh, hymns uh, that just warm your heart and honor God, and and then uh, hear if God would bless uh, uh, me to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is that thirst being satisfied even here this morning at this point, the thirst that you had for the Savior, is it being satisfied? If so, it's because there's a well of water inside of you just as gushing up. It's like a fountain, my friends. It doesn't have to be refilled. It's always there. And therefore, there's never going to come a time that's eternal. What I'm talking about to you is eternal. There's never coming a time when you'll be without that which God supplies you with inwardly. You go to Isaiah 41, 17, and the writer says, When the poor and needy seek after water, and there is none. See, this is experiential text I'm talking about now. When the poor and needy seek after water, and there is none. Have you ever been in a place, been in a situation, been in a set of circumstances? Where you just had the strongest desire and thirst, my friends, for the things of God, but you're out of place, you're out of pocket. There was no water there. What did the Lord say? He says, I will not forsake them. I'll look up rivers in high places. I'll look up fountains in the midst of the valleys. I'll make pools of water in the wilderness and springs in the desert land. No matter whether you're in the wilderness, in the desert, in the valleys, or on top of the mountain, my friends, God is able to bring you a fresh supply of water to take care of that inward and spiritual thirst that you should have and I trust do have from time to time. So often as you're reading the Bible, especially in the Gospel of John, when Jesus was talking about spiritual and eternal things, the person he's talking to is thinking he's talking about natural things and external things. That was the way it was with Nicodemus. When he told Nicodemus, you must be born again, Nicodemus said, how can you enter back in your mother's womb the second time? The Lord was talking about being born over a lot of difference in being born over and being born again. The Lord had a different kind of birth under consideration, you see. And that's what he's doing here with the Samaritan woman. The woman saith to him, Sir, now, she still knows know who he is, but she's talking to him now with respect, isn't she? She says, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. She still don't get it. She thinks, oh, Lord, if that's the case, give me this water. I'm tired of having to come to this well. I'm tired of having to draw water out of this well. I'm tired of having to tote this bucket of water and this water pot all the way back to my people. Just give it to me so I don't have to do that ever again aren't you glad God's got something far better than that under consideration for you here's how Jesus oh I want to go back up here to verse 11 excuse me this is the first time she calls him sir she says the woman said to him sir thou hast nothing to draw with and the well is deep (laughs) from whence then hast thou this living water this is a deep well you don't even have a pail (laughs) you know a lot of our younger people have never seen a real well you know that? I remember growing up, just every, every farmhouse had a, had a well, right? I, I mean, I had a well uh, down in Florida where I live, but it, uh, I mean, I had a tank outside and this, that, and the other, but I'm talking about a well where you can look down in and you can actually see the water and you can let a bucket down there and get water up and bring it out of there. <laughs> now, you know, our young folks, they just go to the kitchen, turn it on, <laughs> and out it comes. <laughs> How easy that is. It didn't used to be that easy. used to be there would be the, the ladies or the girls of the household on the farm and they would uh, draw the water out of the bucket and take it to their brothers and their and their father out in the field where they were laboring. They were hot and they were tired and they were weary. That was work. That was work. That was hard work. They knew what drawing water out of a well was all about. And she says, Sir, you don't even have anything to draw with. Aren't you glad Jesus doesn't need anything to draw with? When it comes to drawing, we read in John six forty four where the Lord said, no man can come to me except the Father who sent me draw him. Now I raise him again in the last day. See, she's looking at means and Jesus doesn't use means, the means of men. Just Jesus knows how to get it done. And he doesn't need a he doesn't need the bucket of faith. He don't need the bucket of repentance. He don't need a bucket of baptism. He don't need a, a bucket of this, that, and the other. Uh, my friends, Jesus Christ just simply draws you a state of, sin, of, life, of death and sin to a state of life in the Lord and Jesus Christ without the means that so many people think you've got to employ to be able to get that done. Sir, you don't even have a bucket. <laughs> and that well is deep. Well, let's get back down here to Verse 16, Jesus saying there, go, call thy husband, and come thither. Wonder what this woman thought when he said that. Go and call your husband, and then come. Go and come. Here's her reply. The woman answered, said, this is her shortest reply. This is her shortest reply in this conversation with Jesus. I have no husband. Jesus said to her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five. And he whom thou hast is now not thy husband, and that says thou truly. Jesus has just displayed to her his omniscience. The Lord knew about this Samaritan woman. He knew everything about her. He knew her name. He just doesn't tell us what it was. He knew where she would be, what she'd be doing. He knew she'd be there at noontime. And he went, he'd go through Samaria to meet this woman right here. He reveals unto her things that no way he could possibly know he's a stranger. He's somebody she's never met, does not know, but yet he knows this, that the one she's with now is not her husband and she's had five in times past. The woman changes the subject. (laughs) The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive thou art a prophet. She understands that. Who, how, you couldn't have known this if you weren't a prophet. And then it says, Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. And you say in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. That's, that's the way it was. They worshiped in Mount Jerusalem. The Jews worshiped down here in Jerusalem. Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Yes, at that time that was true. But the time was going to come when that was not going to be the case for the Samaritans or the Jewish people, either one. Ye worship, you know not what. We know what we worship for salvation as other Jews. What did the Lord mean by that expression, salvation as other Jews? The word salvation here is just synonymous with the name Jesus. You know what the word Jesus means? It means salvation. It means Savior. That's what it means. And that's how Simeon used it. If you read his experience in Luke chapter 2, when Mary and Joseph brought Christ into the temple when he was 42 days of age, and the, uh, the Lord had promised by the Spirit unto Simeon he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And Simeon picks up uh, Jesus, takes I guess, take him from the arms of Mary, and holds him in his arms. And he says then, Let thy servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Well, what had his eyes saw? His eyes seen Jesus. His eyes saw the Christ. His eyes saw the Messiah. He's holding the Christ in his arms, in his hands there, and embracing, bringing him close to his heart, into his bosom. He said, Mine eyes have now seen thy salvation. That's what Jesus is. Jesus is salvation. He says that we know that salvation is of the Jews. I am the Messiah, in other words. And I came just like the prophets of the Jews said I would come. I was born in the Virgin. I was born in Bethlehem. I was born at the right time, in the right place. Just like the prophets had said, salvation is other than Jews. The word salvation is just simply another name for Jesus here. And the hour now cometh and now is when the true worship worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit and thou that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. This is the third time in John's gospel that Jesus uses the word must, M-U-S-T. The first time is in John 3 with Nicodemus. When he told Nicodemus, you must be born again. He wasn't saying, Nicodemus, you're not born again, and you must be born again. He's telling telling Nicodemus, verily, verily, I say unto you. He says, you must be born again. In other words, a man cannot see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. You must be born again to see the kingdom, to see the beauties of the Lord, to see the spiritual things of God. And then further down there, he says, except the Son of Man be lifted up, as Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, except the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus was lifted up just like the serpent was lifted up. He says, even so, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And he was lifted up. Several years down the road, he was lifted up on Calvary. And then the third time is right here. If you'll take a look at those three references, you'll see the first one has reference to the third person of Godhead, the Spirit of God, the second reference to the Son of God, and the third reference to the Father, the first person of the Godhead. He said, those who worship me must worship me in spirit and truth, for God is a spirit and seek as such to worship Him. In order to have divine worship, true worship, except to worship the sight of God, it must be by a people who've been born in the Spirit of God, redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, And they understand the truth of the person and work of the Savior, that he was God's beloved son, that he came to this world to save his people from their sins, and he saved them from their sins. He accomplished salvation. He didn't make it possible, my friends. That's the theory of the world out here. He didn't make it possible. I'm telling you, he actually did it. He actually secured it. You understand that truth, to worship God in spirit and in truth according to God's divine word. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am He. In other words, I am He. Which gospel is the I am gospel of the four? It's John's gospel. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine, and you are the branches. The gospel of John is the I am gospel. He tells this woman right here, I am he. Just like we read in John chapter 8, when Jesus said, destroy this temple. Three days, I'll build it again. They said, uh, you know, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And they said, you're not even 50 years old yet. You know what Jesus said? He said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and was glad of it. He said, he saw me as the great I am. He reveals himself to this woman as the great I am. Now, I love the reaction of this woman. I want us to finish with this this morning. This woman who came here to this well to carry out a duty and responsibility. No doubt she'd done many times in her life. She came with a natural water pot. to to a natural well with natural water, little water. And she's going to draw water and fill that water pot and take it back. That was an important task of the day. But she is so excited about what has happened to her. She's so excited with the conversation she's had with the Messiah. She's so excited to find this is the Messiah that I've been talking about. This is the Messiah. This is a great I Am. She's so excited. The Bible says she left the water pot and went back to her people. (laughs) You know, we have so many things in our lives that just weight us down, do we not? That's why the writer of Hebrews chapter twelve says, Let us lay aside every weight, and these send the dust so easily beset us and run this race with patience, looking at Jesus Christ, the author and finish of our faith. Uh, we have so many weights we need to lay aside. This woman's weight was a was a water pot. She laid it aside. And she ran back and she had a message. And the message was, "Come see a man," which told me all things that I ever did. <laughs> that probably scared some of them away. <laughs> probably some of them said, "Well, if he told you all things you ever did, I don't want him telling me all things I ever did." But my friends, he stirred the people up, and they believed because of her word. She became an evangelist right on the spot. She was burning on the inside to tell her people, "Come see a man." She used the very words of the Lord Jesus Christ to her when he said to her, Go, call thy husband, and come. Go and come. She wanted them to understand she had had a marvelous experience. She had a wonderful experience. She, uh, she came back up with something far greater than a water pot full of water. There's people probably missing today because of their water pot. You know that... I remember one time, years ago, man, he couldn't come to church because his air conditioner went out. And he, he had to be there for the repairman to come. And I'm thinking, you reckon the preacher's air conditioner ever goes out? And one man, one time, I remember, he said, well, I can't come to church today. My well's not working. I got the whale man coming. You couldn't have got him there at three in the evening? Does the preacher's well never go out? <laughs> Does a preacher's car never have a flat tire? Does a preacher's car uh, battery never fail? <laughs> of course it does. And if I was to come here, and no, if I was not to come here, and I was absent and didn't show up, and somebody said, Brother Tim, where's your dad? He said, Well, his air conditioning went out, and he called the repairman, he's going to be there at 11 o'clock. He just can't make it today. Really? <laughs> Are you serious? You mean Brother Lawrence is not gonna be here, you couldn't get him to come at three or four in the afternoon? And you'd have every right to say that. Every right. I don't want a water pot hindering me. I know the water pot was important, but she found something more important. And she just left the water pot there. Said, Come see a man. Told me all things I ever did. That's, that's what I want. I want to try to tell somebody. I want, I want you to come to Bethel Church. I, I want you to hear about a Christ you may not have heard of about lately. I want you to hear about a Messiah. I want you to hear about a Savior that's victorious. I want you about a Savior that is able to, he was able to triumph over all things. He was triumphed over sin, death, hell, and the grave. And because he triumphed, we shall triumph because he was victorious. We shall be victorious. I want you to come hear about a Christ. like Come see a man that told me all things I ever did. Come see the omniscient Lord. Come see the omnipotent Lord. Come see the omnipresent Lord. Come see the victorious Lord. We believe in a risen Savior. We believe in a successful Savior. We believe in a Savior that's sent Him back to glory that's on the right hand waiting, on, my friends. To that point in time, to come back to this earth one more time, but this time not to put away sin. That took place 2,000 years ago. But to gather His jewels home. Every little ex child of God, my friend. He'll get them in His arms and bring them into glory. He'll take them across the threshold and they shall never experience another heartache, never another sorrow, never another problem here in this world. Come see a man.